0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: This show is brought to you by audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. To get a free audiobook download of your choice, log on to audiblepodcast.com/sofa today for details. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello, and welcome to Oral Delights Show 110. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. So hello everyone, yes, welcome to Show 110, and yeah, you'll be pleased to know I'm getting over my little midlife crisis there of getting old. Yes, what's going on there? I'm just a young spring chicken, never mind that salt and pepper colour hair. Yeah, <laughs> I was really <laughs> feeling it last week. Whoa, oh, I don't know what that was We it just came over us and I was thinking, you know, it's nearly getting bloody towards 50. And then when I think about it, well, I'm not, I'm just bloody 43, so there you go. People are thinking, Fort- oh, God, he is, he is quite old. <laughs> yes. So there you go, I'm, I'm, I'm over that, that's behind us, life's going on. I'll give you a heads up what's happening in today's show. The editorial, now, the editorial is slightly different today. It's going to come from Sean Q. Sean actually got, and been very kind, he's done a few book reviews for Starship So oral Delights. And he just sent us, out of the blue, this review of Starship Sofa Stories, the, the actual hardback one. And I listened to it, and I just thought, you know, that's amazing. I couldn't actually see the way Sean's described and everything like that. You know, because I guess you're sick of me blathering on about it. But, you know, it, it's getting near Christmas, and I thought, oh, I'll play Sean's little review of that. You know, and see so if I can entice some more to get away and go and download or buy Starship Sofa Stories. Volume 1. So that's the editorial. Next, it will be the start of the Sofa Note Awards. Yes, that time has come round again. Mark Bowman has a little audio article. Mark's busily now correlating everything and getting everything sorted out because the Sofa Note Awards kicks off today. So this is now the kind of pre-read. I'll let Mark go into everything and tell you all about it. But this is where they start. So get ready for the email, bomb, bomb and to find out who eventually the winners will be. Next up is another fact article by Corey Doctorow, no less, with a little help. And this is his article that was in Publishers Weekly, laying out his kind of manifesto, one for a better word, of his little experiment he's going to do on a short story collection. So that's, we've got that recorded. Then we have the main fiction by Corey Doctorow as well, To Go Boldly. Narrated by Jim Campanella. And look at the, the artwork as well, done by Skeet. Down to the wire bless him with Skeet this week, or this month. He has got so much on, and like I say, I'm so proud of Skeet. Do have a look at the artwork for this. Then Rob comes in with his Film Talk fact article. Round things off, we have new titles, few new titles. And then right at the end, I will tell you, explain what's happening for next week's show. As you know, next week's show is the first week in December. Mr. Larry Santoro, yes! So I'll tell you all about what's going to happen next week. That is, or that will be, show 110 of Oral Delights. So the editorial has a little twist today. It is by Sean Kyo and it's actually the review of Starship Over stories. You know, with with a hope that you might consider... Treating yourself to it. For figures, actually, board books, I think we're topping round about 210, something like that. So please, you know, there's many more people out there. Please consider getting this for Christmas as a present to yourselves. (laughs) So I'll hand you straight over to Sean.
2: Hello, Tony. This is Sean beardy Keo from the wilds of rural Oxfordshire. Just reporting in. Listen carefully to this. Those are the pages and the hardback cover of Starship Sofa Stories Volume 1, which our nice local postie has just delivered. The deluxe super-duper hardback version. And it is absolutely stunning. It's brilliant. I didn't realise it was going to be this big. It's kind of about the size of the old sci-fi pulp mags. And, of course, the... uh, the cover has been designed to be exactly in the style of the old pulp magazines. And it's just brilliant. Uh, It also reminds me of the annuals that my sister and I used to get bought at Christmas and birthdays, you know, Dr. Who annuals and blue Peter annuals and things like that. Uh, And it's, it's beautifully produced by Lulu. I mean, it's lovely. And the design of the thing, um, the way the pages are laid out, the, uh, the brilliant little kind of adverts from, uh, 1950s magazines. It's, uh, it's a classic piece of work and I'm so excited, practically bouncing around the room, uh, looking forward to reading this. It's wonderful. And I can't wait for volume two as well. And I hope it just goes on and on and we can all build up a library of these things. It really takes me back to, Oh, I don't know when I was about nine or 10 years old and, uh, we didn't used to get very much pocket money, tiny amount. And I'd walk into town and go to the shop on Station Hill in Barking and look at all the racks of pulp mags, science fiction comics and so on, and think, well, either I can buy one of these or I can get a bag of sherbet flying saucers and some licorice things. Now, how do you balance up those two? Ooh, which one's going to come down and... and More often than not, I'd uh, end up leaving the suites and having the comic instead. And uh, this just takes me right back to to that era when I was reading everything. Well, I still do, but, you know, nine years old, ten years old, reading absolutely everything. And just can't get enough. I've gone through practically every science fiction book in the children's library. Um, I got permission to have library tickets for the adult library and started taking out six books at a time. Oh, and this is, this is great. It makes me feel just like I'm 10 years old and it's my birthday. <laughs> um, I know I'm gushing a bit, but, um, it's just wonderful. I did not expect it to be produced to this kind of standard. It is brilliant. So thank you very, very much, Tony, for the editing and of course, being the mastermind behind all of this work. Thanks so much to all of the authors for giving permission for their stories to be published. And, and thanks to all of the artists that did all the illustrations and the and the cover design and so on. Highly recommended. If anyone's listening to this that hasn't ordered a copy, you don't need to spend all the money like that I did on the hardback. You know, the paperback ones, I'm sure, are just as great. But uh, if you can afford it, go for the hardback because it's a, just a wonderful object. And, uh, and then you can enjoy the the physical pleasures of reading it. As well as as enjoying the stories, so that's enough for me. I've gone on for far too long. Hopefully, I'll be back with uh, some reviews of uh, books in the near future. Uh, just been a way too busy recently, but um, in the meantime, um, carry on suffering. Bye bye.
1: There you go. Thank you, Sean. Sean sent that in, and you know he just says, "You, if you want to use it, use it." And it was just. The way he described the book and, you know, and the, the memories and that, that was brilliant, Sean. Thank you so much. So please do, you know, if you haven't got Starship Sovars Volume 1, you know, pop over to the site, get yourself a copy. That would be, mean so much to us. So now, the, the year has come round again, and this is where the SofaNord Awards kick off for this year. And Mark, who organised everything last year and kind of who correlated and sorted, number crunched because he likes his number crunching, sorted it all out, Mark's come on board again, and I'll Leave you in the capable hands of Mr. Mark Borman.
0: Hi, everyone. It's Mark Borman here for another year to tell you about Starship Sofa's SofaNord Awards. The Nord Awards give listeners the opportunity to vote on their favourite stories and contributors from Starship Sofa's Oral Delights. And the 2010 SofaNord Awards will this year be encompassing all stories and contributors from episode 53 to episode 110. This is the second year the Nord Awards have been held by Starship Sofa. The first awards were held last year with much success. Proved to be a wonderful way for listeners to share and celebrate a year's worth of fantastic stories and contributors. So to kick things off for another year of voting, I'd like to tell you about our six categories. First category is for main fiction. This includes all of the headlining stories from each episode as well as any serials that have been run over more than one episode. Um, Once again we also have the flash fiction category um, although this year it's going to be called the flash and short fiction category as there were some stories that were perhaps a bit longer than usual flash fiction but weren't included in the show as headlining stories so it basically, any story that wasn't main headlining story has has been placed in the category of Flash and Short Fiction. The Best Poetry Contributor category has been slightly altered for this year. Uh, this year, um, the category will be called the Best Poetry and Song Contributor. Uh, this is to include the people who have contributed songs to Starship Sofa in the past year. Once again, we have a category for Best Narrator, this includes each and every person who has provided narration for poetry and fiction on Starship Sofa. We also have a category for Best Fact Article Contributor, including everyone who has contributed an article of any description for Starship Sofa, Uh, you'll find all their names on the poll as well as information about the nature of the article that they contributed. Um, We're adding a sixth category to the awards this year. We'll have a Best Artwork category to celebrate the amazing artwork that's been provided by various artists each month for Starship Sofa. For those of you who are familiar with your Starship Sofa history, the first show to feature a cover was Episode 52, which was the final show eligible for last year's Sofa Nord Awards, in which we did not have a Best Artwork category. So, I've included the artwork for episode 52 in this year's Sofanaut awards. And you can find links to all of the, all of those covers on the poll. This poll that I've been mentioning can be found at SofaNauts 2010questionprocom and there will be a link to that poll on the starshipsofa.com webpage for you to follow. And that poll will be open until December the 7th, which is the Monday before episode 112. And then on episode 112, I'll be announcing the shortlist of finalists. So this first round is just a nomination round. You can vote only once, but you can vote for as many stories and contributors as you wish. So it's your chance to put all your favourites out there and see how they go. Um, as I said, I'll announce the short list on show 112 along with details about how you can vote for your favourite finalists. If you've only recently just started listening to Starship Sofa, don't be afraid to jump onto the poll and have your votes for the stories that you've enjoyed the most so far. When the finalist list is announced, you'll be able to go back and catch up on some of the favourite stories and contributors that you've missed out on. Also, if you can't... Recall the title or author of a story, but you can remember what the story was about. um, Feel free to jump onto the forums, um, ask other members for the title. I'm sure there's people there with better memories than me who can let you know about it. So, to summarise, all stories and contributors from episodes 53 to 110 are eligible for the 2010 Sofenort Awards. Categories include Best Main Fiction, Best Flash and Short Fiction... Best Poetry and Song Contributor, Best Narrator, Best Fact Article Contributor, and Best Artwork. And this initial nomination round will close on December 7th. Voting can be done at sophonauts2010.questionpro.com. I'll be announcing the shortlist of finalists on episode 112, as well as giving you details on how you can vote on the shortlist. Hope you will get involved in the Sophonaut Awards this year get voting thanks bye so there you go the
1: sofa Wars awards are now up and running who will win will there be tears and tantrums <laughs> we can only tell it if you vote so please try and make an effort to vote and we'll find out who is the best of the best of the best <laughs> So this show is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Audible has over thirty-five thousand titles to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. So log on to com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice. Again go to AudiblePodcast.com slash sofa today for details. So my recommendation for Audible this week is I wanted to because I'm nearly. I've got about two hours left of Coyote Horizon, the Alan Steele. This is the fourth one in his opus collection of everything Coyote. Well, I'm nearly finished that now, and like I say, this is the fourth one, and I've I've done these within you know about two two months, three months. So I wanted something totally different. You know what I mean? I, I always sometimes like that. If you know, I've done like a heavy lot of work on one particular subject, move on. At one particular genre, move on, and just try something different for a little change. And guess what? I'm going to choose. Guess what I've got on my little iPod there ready to go? Stephen King. Yes! <laughs> Under the Dome, his new novel. And this is a monster book. You know what I mean? Fingers crossed I can get through it. Fingers crossed I enjoy it. The last one I read or listened to was His Story of the Cell. And actually at the time I liked it. Do you know what I mean? But looking back there now, I don't think I would have probably even pick it up and listened to it at all now. Because it was since then that I watched that film... 28 days and then I think it was 28 weeks later. There was like zombie. Oh, they freaked me. Out, honestly, we sometimes see up in the northeast. They did my naparian. You know, what I mean? like do your head in. I hated them, and I've, I've worked out what I hate. I hate fast zombies. I do not like. Fast zombies, I get scared. Yes, I honestly do when the lights out, you and it's dark, and then I start thinking about them films. Even now, how long ago that when I first seen that film a couple of years ago oh, shocking. Do you know what I mean? What a shocking, horrible, nasty film. And like I say, but I listened to The Cell, you know, and that didn't really upset us, but I don't think I would listen to that now since these films. So that was the last Stephen King, and I don't know what the one before that was. You know, I haven't really read that many Stephen King, but I've seen the cover for this this Under the Dome, and it it looks a little bit science fiction. I don't think it is science fiction, but I'm going to you know step in, and if anyone wants to listen along with us, do you know what I mean? I fancy doing like a couple of what we used to do with Fred, where we talk about a, a show, a show talk about a book, and you know a couple of like little segments i'll stick into oral delights so if anyone wants to maybe read along or listen along and we'll have like a little debate see what it's like this under the dome is it going to be up to much but what like i say over a thousand pages i think and on my ipod it's coming in around over 34 and a half hours so massive 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 this is what it says on the blurb on an entirely normal Beautiful fall day in Chester's Mill, Maine. The town is inexplicably and suddenly sealed from the rest of the world by an invisible foreshield. No one can fathom out what the barrier is, where it came from and when or if it will ever go away. Dale Barbara finds himself teamed up with a few intrepid citizens. The town newspaper owner, a physician's assistant at the hospital, a select woman and three brave kids. Against them stands Big Jim Reaney. A politician who will stop at nothing to hold the reins of power in his son. Because time isn't just short, it's running out. Celebrated storyteller Stephen King returns to his roots in a tour de force featuring more than a hundred characters. ho diary, diary. Some heroic, some diabolical, and a supernatural element as baffling and as chilling as ever any he could conjure up. With some of the most spectacular, sinister characters King has ever imagined in a driving plot, under the dome is Stephen King at his epic best. The book will thrill every reader who has ever loved a novel by King. So that's my next one on Audible. What I, what I make of it, I have no idea. Hopefully I'll enjoy it, you know what I mean? Am I up to a big 34-hour story? We'll wait and see. And again, if you want to pop over to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa... Get yourself that copy of the audiobook and listen along with me. So, next fact article is Corey Doctorow entitled With a Little Help. And, like I say in the introduction, this is Corey just laying out his plans, this little experiment he's got. And, you know, if you listen to it, you'll understand exactly where he's come from. And he's got some great ideas in there. ideas that I've kind of, you know, half kind of pinched as well to, for volume one. So this is his little idea. O's
3: Project, with a little help. Corey Doctorow kicks off a unique publishing experiment and a monthly PW column. By Corey Doctorow, Publishers Weekly, October 19th, 2009. Back in 2003... I was the first writer to use a Creative Commons license in connection with a commercially published novel. My first novel, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom by Tor, was released as a freely shareable ebook the same day it came out in stores. It's now gone through several printings, has made me a fair bit of money, been widely translated, commercially and non-commercially, and it's been followed by three more novels, including the New York Times bestseller Little Brother... Tour Teens 2008, all of which are also available as free, remixable downloads. Two more novels are on their way on the same terms. I've also published two collections of short fiction reprinted from magazines, A Place So Foreign and Eight More, Four Walls, Eight Windows 2004, and Overclocked, Thunder's Mouth 2007 both critically well-received, award-winning, and excellent sellers. Finally, I've also done a collection of essays. Content, Techyon, 2008, and IDW published a graphic novel collecting six of my stories adapted for comics. Cory Doctorow's Futuristic Tales of the Here and Now in 2008 under these very same terms. Free ebooks work for me. I've been a full-time writer since I quit my day job as a European director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a charity that works for online civil liberties, in January 2006. Since then, I've made my living through a combination of royalties and licenses, foreign translations, film options, etc. Earnings from Boing Boing, the popular blog I co-edit and co-own, speaking fees, column writing, and the occasional grant, teaching gig or residency. Mine is the semi-random hodgepodge of income sources that characterizes most of the freelancers I know, as skills, circumstances, and capacity dictates. Still, this business of my giving away ebooks is a controversial subject. I encounter plenty of healthy skepticism in my travels, and not a little bile. There's a lot of people who say I'm pulling a fast one, that I'd be making more money if I did this crazy liberal copyright stuff, or that I'm the only one it'll ever work for, or that I secretly make all my money from doing stuff that isn't writing, or that it only works because I'm so successful. Of course, when I started, they said it only works because I was so unknown. People want proof that this works, that I'm not deluded or a con artist, But it's hard to prove. I don't have a time machine I can use to republish all my books without the free downloads and compare royalty statements. And the skeptics aren't the only people who claim I've got it wrong. There are also the true believers. The true believers are the people who say that I'm a fool to give away 90% of the cover price of my books to the publisher and booksellers. After all, I have three or four million people a day who read my blog. I could just self-publish all my material and get it directly into the hands of my readers and pocket the lion's share of the income. I'm a contrarian on both of these propositions, that I'm losing money by giving away eBooks, and that I'm losing money by using a publisher.' I have a nice little Goldilocks gig going. Not too hot, not too cold. Just the right amount of DIY independent publishing and just the right amount of professional support and administration from my publisher to sell. But I'm as curious about both propositions as anyone. While it's fun to argue about whose intuition is more correct, I think facts on the ground beat a priori assumptions every time. So I've come up with an idea to get some facts in evidence while making some money and raising a little hell. The Experiment Here's the pitch. The book is called With a Little Help. It's a short story collection, and like my last two collections, it's a book of reprints from various magazines and other places, with one exception, more about which later. Like my other collections, it will be available for free on the day it's released. And like my last collection, Overclocked, it won't have a traditional publisher. Let me explain that last part. Overclocked was published in January 2007, just weeks after the Advanced Marketing Services, the parent company of Publishers Group West, which distributed Thunder's Mouth. The publisher for Overclocked went bankrupt. You remember Advanced Marketing Services? What a mess. First, a senior executive was arrested and convicted of fraud for falsifying the company's earnings. Then the company tanked, and the resulting whirlpool threatened to suck half of New York publishing down with it. As a result, Thunder's mouth went through a series of mergers and acquisitions. My editor and then his replacement both left or were let go. I never found out which. By spring, no one was communicating with me. Later that year, I did a kind of self-financed Minotaur, piggybacking on speaking gigs and every time I went into a bookstore, it seems like I was seeing another edition of the book with a different publisher's name on the spine. The books currently listed in Perseus' catalogue, for which I'm glad, the royalty checks keep coming, and the book continues to do well, but I could no longer be said to have any particular relationship with this publisher. As far as I can tell, it is listing the book in its catalogue and filling orders, but not much else. This makes Overclocked into a fine control for my little experiment. It is a good book. It sold well and was critically acclaimed. But it is solidly a mid-list title, a short story collection published by a house turned upside down by bankruptcy. It will be the baseline against which I compare the earnings from With a Little Help. And those earnings will be diverse. Like the musicians who successfully self-produce albums in a variety of packages at a variety of price points. Radiohead, Trent Reznor, David Byrne and Brian Eno, Jonathan Coulton. I have set out to produce a book that can be had in a range of packages and at a range of price points from $0 to $10,000. P&L Doctors swear an oath to do no harm. For this project, I've taken an oath to lose no money. That means that my capital expenditures have to be as low as possible. In the ideal world, every object I make available will either cost nothing to produce or will be physically instantiated only after it has been ordered and paid for. With this in mind, let me run down the packages. Ebook, Free in a wide variety of formats. I have always released my books in three formats, text, HTML, and PDF formatted for two-column portrait printout, and my readers have always followed up by converting them to an astonishing long tail of other formats for their preferred readers. I maintain the three canonical files, updating them to fix typos, etc., but I don't attempt to do this with reader conversions. It'd be way too much work. One advantage to having so many geeky readers is that they find it rewarding and easy to hack together automation tools for me. Vaskin Kisoyan, a reader in the US, uh, recently sent me a beta of a package called Ange that he's written to single-source my master text files into HTML, PDF, and EPUB, so that all I need to do is make an edit in the text file and run the script – and it converts the updated file to all the other formats and uploads them for me. There's a reason this collection is called With a Little Help. Audiobook, free in a wide variety of formats. I've always taken great pleasure in reading my works aloud. I've done 150-plus installments of a podcast of my doing just that, but I'm no pro. However, many of my friends are pro-voice actors, and I've called on them to each record one of the stories from the book. The impressiveness of the roster is incredibly gratifying to me, including as it does such voice talents as Will Wheaton, Mary Robinette Kawhi, and Leo Laporte, as well as pals like voice actor Emily Herson and CBC radio personality Jesse Brown. Colleagues like Spider Robinson, J.C. Hutchins, and Hugh Spencer, and fans like Roy Turnbull. Not only am I an amateur when it comes to readings, I'm a total noob when it comes to mastering audio. Again, a reader saves my bacon. John Williams of DC's Rhinex Studios is a talented sound engineer who got fed up with the poor quality of my podcasts, so he's been mastering them for me for some months now. He's been doing the same for all these disparate recordings, and I've offered him a cut from the net of sales on the CD-DVD versions of the audio. These recordings are Creative Commons licensed, and I'll be approaching all the major science fiction and tech podcasts, to which I am a frequent contributor and guest, to include as many as they'd like in their feeds. Science fiction podcasting is pretty concentrated, and I expect that I'll reach a good 300,000 fans with this experiment. There's also some supplementary material in the audio edition. The introduction, written by internet rock star Jonathan Coulton, will be read aloud by him as well. The afterword, written by my agent, the publishing veteran Russell Gallen, will likewise be voiced by him. Donations. Whatever happens. I have never solicited donations for my works before, despite the urgings of true believers who would like to see my publishers cut out of the loop, because I want to be sure my publisher was in the loop. This time around, I'm the publisher, so let's see what people are interested in giving. Print-on-demand trade paperback. $16, approximately. Price to be decided. Lulu.com produces beautiful books Objects that look every bit as good as the lightning source trade paperbacks that Ingram will sell you, provided you know what you're doing when you design them. A designer I am not, but John Berry, who designed my essay collection, Content, for Tachyon, is. He's a legendary typographer and type designer, and is also a palamine. The book is called With a Little Help, remember. And he's agreed to do the interiors and help with the overall package for a percentage of the net book sales. For the covers, I've approached four different cover artists. Hugo winner Frank Wu, sci-fi writer and painter Rudy Rucker. Veteran, veteran Rick Leader, and Tor.com honcho Pablo Defendini, who produced the art-heavy serialization of my forthcoming novel, Makers, for Tor.com, as well as running up a stupendous fan art poster for my last novel, Little Brother. The book will be available with all four covers, and I will also be on the lookout for suitable pieces of art to license for limited edition covers that I'll sell at a premium for a week or two. I'm also offering a custom cover package for people running events or giveaways for a setup fee. I'm thinking $300, but that's not fixed in stone. I'll sell you as many copies at Lulu's cost as you'd like with your own cover on it. Proofing and copy editing are less onerous here than they would be in work of original fiction. All of these reprints have already been through a copy edit and proofing pass, ...at the magazines where they were originally published. But I'm also lucky to be the son of Dr. Roslyn Doctorow. My mum is a king-hell proofer... ...who routinely finds typos and even character name switches... ...that are missed by my editors, copy editors and proofers. Naturally, she's not charging me for the service. Thanks, Mum. Now, lots of people have used pod... ...as a way of avoiding a lot of sunk costs in publishing ventures... But I want to see how far I can push it. With my previous books, my readers have sent in typos as they discover them, and I've fixed the electronic tests immediately, storing up lists of changes for my publisher to incorporate in future printings. But pod means that I can fix typos as soon as they're reported. And what's more, I can add acknowledgements to the reader who caught it on the page where the correction appears as a footnote. I have a feeling that readers will happily buy a second copy of the book in order to have a printing in which their name appears. Premium hardcover edition. $250, limited run of 250 copies. My office is in Clerkenwell, in London, close to several artisanal binders and some damn fine printers. My favourite binder is the venerable family-owned Wyvern Bindery, which has agreed to bind a fine limited edition of With a Little Help for £20 a copy, in quantities of 20. The interior pages will be printed on old acres of Hatton Gardens, which will do them on an all-rag stock of £17 each. Of course hand-bound hardcovers are pretty common stuff. So in keeping with the nothing-exceeds-like-excess ethos of the project, I'm coming up with three very nice bonuses for the books. First, embossed on each cover, will be an original illustration of me as a superhero in cape and goggles, drawn by Randall Munro, creator of the immensely popular XKCD webcomic. Randall frequently features me as this character in his strips, and it's become such a running gag that I'm routinely greeted at speaking gigs by fans bearing goggles and capes for me to wear. Second, also embossed into each cover, will be a rectangular indentation just the right size for an SD card containing the full text of the book and all the audio. I'm going to use the nifty Sand Disk cards that fold in half and plug right into your USB slot for PCs that don't have built in SD readers. The cards are glued into the cover with a dot of rubber cement, and so you have to decide whether to leave the book in mint condition and download the electronic material or to play with the new toy, the perfect collectible conundrum. Finally, Every book will have unique endpapers made from paper ephemera solicited from writer friends ranging from William Gibson and Neil Gaiman to Kelly Link and Aileen Gunn. These have been coming in all summer, and they run the gamut from the wrenching, Jay Lake's cancer diagnosis, to the uplifting, Joe Holdman's watercolors, to the uproarious, Kathy Koja's second grade report cards. These will also be scanned and made available as a free Creative Commons licensed Flickr set. Commission a new story. $10,000, one only. I probably underpriced this, but it's too late now. The idea was to give my readers the chance to commission a story to be added to the collection at a later date thus benefiting from an additional burst of publicity and possibly selling a second copy of the expanded edition to people who want to get the complete sext. I thought $10,000 was a nice, high number, but attainable, maybe the kind of thing a co-op of readers could come together to buy. A little existence proof of the wonders of crowdsourcing, etc., As a sweetener, I threw in a a half-a-page ad for a mutually agreeable cause, product or service. But back in June, as I mentioned this over lunch with Mark Shuttleworth, the South African tech millionaire responsible for the Ubuntu Linux project and also the first civilian to go into space as a tourist, courtesy of the Russian Space Agency, and he immediately bought it. And a few readers have come forward since to say they'd have happily gone $10,000 to commission their own story. Makes me think I'll ask for 20000 next time around. I think this is what the economists call price discovery. Advertisements to be decided. Since the paperbacks are print-on-demand and the electronic files can be trivially modified, I'm going to sell a single ad unit on a time-limited basis a half-page or 500-pixel square, or five lines of text, depending on the image, at a price to be determined in month-long increments. After a month, I'll remove the ad from the downloads and print templates. Donations of books to be decided. Since the publication of Little Brother in Spring 2008... I've run a donation program for my books wherein I ask librarians, teachers and people who work in other worthy institutions, halfway houses, shelters, hospitals, etc., to put their names down for free copies. I publish this list online and mention it in the introductions to all the digital copies of the works. Publicly spirited readers who want to donate a copy go to the list Pick and then order a copy for them from their favourite bookseller, electronic or physical. They send me the receipt and I cross off the names. I've sold several hundred hardcovers this way, which comes into real royalties, a substantial lift to my sales figures and many, many happy readers. Up until now, I've paid an assistant to do the hard work on this, going through the solicitations to ensure they come from legit people, updating the web page as requests are filled. This is expensive and cumbersome. This time around, my agent, Russell Galen, has offered the services of his agency to handle that, and Lulu has offered to automate the process somewhat. The results. That's how the money is going to come in. To be honest, I have no idea how much money that will be. $10,000 has already come in, of course. But I do know what I'll do about it. I'm going to disclose it. All of it. Every month. In a running tally in a monthly column here in Publishers Weekly. And incidentally, this article is grossing me all of $900, less my agent's 15% commission, and the column's $400 hereafter. I will then put this into an appendix which will be added to the new editions of the book and compared to the revenues from Overclocked. That's as close as to apples to apples comparison as I can come up with, but I think it will speak well to the question, what's the best a writer like me can do on his own versus with a traditional publisher for whom he does everything he can to aid in book sales? There's plenty more details, of course, how I'm going to use Twitter, what I'm going to do to get this into bookstores, the marketing and publicity plan, but I'm out of space for this month, and many of those details will fill a column on their own. One thing I need to mention, though, I'm seriously considering writing a book about the experiment, no matter how it turns out, selling it to a traditional publisher, and adding the advance
1: to the balance sheet. Paul Kajiji, thank you so much for narrating that as well. Paul's always doing like the Cory little article, so a big thank you, Paul, to that. So this is the main fiction and it is by, as you say, Cory Doctor. It is narrated by JJ Campanella. Jim, thank you so much for this. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. To go boldly by Corey Doctorow.
4: Captain Reynold J. Subishi of the APP ship Colossus II was the youngest commander in the fleet. He knew he owed his meteoric rise through the ranks to the good study habits he'd acquired in the Academy, specifically the habit of studying what people cared about and embodying those things for them. Thus he was an expert in twentieth-century culture, the mark of distinguished taste in the Academy for two hundred years. A sudden-death bare-knuckles martial artist, a rakish flirt, and a skilled three-harp player. He led nearly every away team, didn't screw the officers, and, and he didn't have the faintest idea what to do about the ball. The ball had been detected in the middle of the second shift, when the B-string had the con and the bridge. No one called them the B-string, but they were. Some ships had tried evenly spreading the top people across all three ships, but no one who was any good wanted to work ships night, and anyone with clout filed for transfers to ships that let the A's congregate in A spaces during daylight hours. So now it was the A string from ships 9 to ship 17, the B string from 17 to 1, and the miserable C's on the truly nocturnal 1 to 9. Tsubishi was in the middle of his first REM, when his headband brought him swiftly to the surface of his mind. dulling up the lights and the smell of wintergreen and eucalyptus, as the hollow of First Lieutenant Mota, framed by the high back of the command chair, filled the room. "'Sir!' Mota said, ripping off a precise salute. His exoskeleton made all routine movement precise. But the salute was a work of art. Right down to the tiny ping as the tip of Zur metal-sheathed tentacle grazed Xur forelobe. My apologies for rousing you. The forward sensor array detected a UFO, and on closer inspection we believe it may be evidence of a potentially hostile garrison. The B-string commander was actually pretty good at Xur job, and would certainly have Xur own command by now, but for the fact that the Admiralty was heavily tilted to stock humans and loath to promote non- and transhumans to higher echelon as a wobbly not a flattering name for an entire advanced starfaring race and no one with humanoid mouthparts could pronounce the word in wabalese mota was forever doomed to second banana on the bridge in 3 supishi said with a slightly sleepy salute of his own his fresher had already cleaned and hung his uniform a limitless supply of hardvac gave a new meaning to the phrase dry cleaning and the single-piece garment was crisp as the ones he'd assiduously ironed as a cadet on old Mars. He backed into the fresher and held his arms up while it wrapped him in the fabric. All on-ship toilets had an automated system for dressing and undressing uniformed personnel, while the away teams made do with sloppier, but easier to shuck, baggies, or in the rare event that a green ensign forgot to change before beaming down, relying on teammate to help with the humiliating ritual. Of dressing and undressing. The duty officer barked, Captain on deck, before he'd even managed to set foot down, and the whole B-Squad was on its feet, saluting before his back leg came up to join it. Mota made a formal gesture of handing over the khan, and Tsubishi slid into his chair, just as it finished its hurried reconfiguration to suit his compact, tightly wound frame. The ship beamed a double cappuccino, ship's crest stamped into the foam, into the armrest cup holder, and he sipped it pensively before nodding to Mota to make his report. Mota, the model of second banana efficiency, had whomped up an entire slideshow, with music and animated transitions, Subishi noted, with an inward roll of his eyes, in the time it had taken him to reach the bridge. The entire command crew watched him closely as Mota stepped through it. We were proceeding as normal in our survey of the Tesla Z-65 system, Moda said, the bridge hollow going into Ori mode, showing the system and its 11 planets and 329 planetesimals, the fourth planet out glittering with a safety orange highlight. We deployed the forward sensor arrays here to Tesla Z-654 for initial detailed surveys. Z-654 is just over 1 AU from the star and pulls 1.8 Gs, putting it in the upper bounds of high-value, high-interest survey targets. The hollow swept forward in dizzying jumps as the sensor packages beamed each other closer and closer to the planet in a series of hops, leaving them strung out in a lifeline from the ship's safe position among z 65s outer rim to z six five four. 90 AUs away. The final stage established a long elliptical orbit and beamed its tiny progeny into tighter geostationary orbits around the planet's waistline. The UFO was detected almost immediately. It had been on the dark side of the planet in geostationary, and it came into the lateral sensor range of two of our packages when they beamed in. In a volumetric display, four different views of the UFO a radar-derived mesh, a set of charts displaying its likely composition, an optical photo of the item in shaky high mag, and a cartoon derived from the former, showing the UFO as a sphere, a mere 1.5 meters in diameter, skinned in something black that the radar analysis suggested was a damned efficient one-way sheath that likely disguised a panopticon's worth of sensors, spy eyes, radar. The hollow transitioned, a genie back into the bottle effect, and was replaced with a bulleted timeline of the encounter, including notations as to when radar incursions on the sensor package emanating from the UFO were detected. Mota let the chart stand for itself, then clicked on the final slide, the extrapolated cartoon of the UFO again. Mota ripped off another artful salute. Orders, sir! Have you brought one of our packages forward to get a closer look? No, sir. I anticipated that contingency had made plans for it, but have not given the order. Do it, Subishi said, giving one of those ironical little head tilts that the female cadets on Mars had swooned for, and noted the B-shift tactical officer's appreciative wriggle with satisfaction, and watched the hollow tank as the packet changed its attitude with conservative little thruster bursts, moving slowly relative to the UFO while the continents below whirled past as it came out of geostationary position. The cartoon UFO resolved itself with ever more minute details as the packet got closer and closer. Packet reports radio chatter, three sigmas off-random, 83% confidence that it is communication. The comms officer had an unfortunate speech impediment that she'd all but corrected in the academy, but it was still enough to keep her on the B-Squad. Probably wouldn't accept neurocorrection. eighty five, ninety five, signal identified as ultra wide band sequencing key. Switching to UWB reception now. Playing back nine hundred megahertz to ninety GHz spectrum for ten minutes using key. Repeating pattern found. Decoding. It was the standard first contact drill. Any species plying the spaces between the stars was bound to converge on one of the few Rosetta strategies. The tank showed a real-time visualization of the ship's symbology AI subsystem, picking a million digits of pi out of the chatter, deriving the counting system, then finding calculus, bootstrapping higher symbols out of that, moving on to physics, and then to the physics of hyperspace. A progress bar tracked the system's confidence that it could decode arbitrary messages from the UFO's originating species, and as it approached completion, Subishi took another sip of his cappuccino and tipped his head toward the comms officer. Hail the UFO, Ms. DeFuca Williamson. The comms officer's hands moved over her panels, then she nodded back at Subishi. This is Captain Reynold J. Subishi of the Alliance of Peaceful Planet Ship Colossus 2. In the name of the Alliance and its 42-member species, I offer you greetings in the spirit of galactic cooperation and peace. It was canned, that line, but he'd practiced it in the hollow in his quarters so that he could sell it fresh every time. The silence stretched. A soft chime marked an incoming message. A succession of progress bars filled the hollow tank as it was decoded, demuxed, and remuxed. Another, more emphatic chime. Do it, Subishi said to the comms officer, and the first contact was made anew. The form that filled the tank was recognizably a head. It was wreathed in writhing tentacles, each tipped with organs that the computer identified with high confidence as sensory, visual, olfactory, temperature, temperature. The tentacles whipped around as the bladder of the thing's throat inflated, then blatted out something in its own language, which made wobblees sound mellifluous. The computer translated Oh, for God's sake, role players, you've got to be kidding me. Then the message disappeared. A klaxon sounded, and the bridge dimmed. Flashing red lights filled the bridge. Status. Subishi took another calm sip of his cappuccino, though his heart was racing. Captains never broke a sweat. It went with the territory. The package has gone non-responsive. Nearby telemetry suggests with high confidence that the package has been destroyed. Another has gone offline. Two more. All packages non-responsive and presumed under attack. Bring us to DEFCON 4. Subishi said. Do it. The A-team assembled on the bridge in a matter of minutes, freshly wrapped in their uniforms, unceremoniously pushing the unprotesting B-team out of their seats, just as the ship's computer beamed their preset high-alert snacks and beverages to their workstations. As a courtesy, Mota was allowed to remain on the bridge, but the rest of the second shift slunk away, looking hurt and demoralized. Subishi pursed his lips at their departing backs and felt the burden of command. "'Bring us to within 5 AU, Lieutenant,' he said, nodding at Deng Gorinsky in the navigator's chair. "'I want to get a little closer.' At 5 AUs, they could beam photon torpedoes to within 15 minutes of the UFO. If it was anything like their own packages, they could outmaneuver it with the torpedo's thrusters at that range." The lieutenant showed her teeth as she brought the ship up to speed, battle-ready and champing to blow the intruder out of the sky. The ping of another incoming message brought the crew's attention back to the comp's post. The progress bars went much faster now, the symbology AI now much more confident of its guesses about the intruder's language. "'Now what are you doing? Can't you see I'm already here? Get lost. This is my patch.' In the name of the APP, I order you to stand down and power down your offensive systems. Anything less will be construed as a declaration of war. You have thirty seconds to comply. This is one second. He crumpled his cappuccino cup and tossed it over his shoulder. The ship obliterated it by beaming it into null space before it touched the ground. The hollow tank was counting down, giving the numbers in the pre-assigned ultimatum voice. Female, Calm, cold, with an accent that a 20th century Briton would have recognized as Thatcher Posh. Oh, really, now. You want to shoot at each other. I've got a better idea. Let's meet on the surface and duke it out, being to being, for control of the planet. Capture the flag. First one to get a defensible position on the highest peak of this mountain range gets to claim the whole thing Preserve respective empire. Zubishi noted the neuter pronoun with some interest. Neuter species were more common than highly dimorphic ones in the galaxy. And they had a reputation for being meaner than the poor he-she species, like Homo sapiens sapiens. Something about having your primary genetic loyalty to your identical clones as opposed to your family group, it created a certain ruthlessness. Why should I bargain at all? I could just blow you out of orbit right here. The tentacles writhed in a gesture that the computer badged with the caption, Smirk Confidence 86%, and Subishi pointed a single finger at the ship's gunner, who flexed her chitin and clicked delicately at the control interface, priming and aiming it. The computer quietly turned a patch of Subishi's armrest into a display and flashed a discreet notification about the spike in hormonal aggression, volatiles, being detected on the bridge. He waved it away. He didn't need a computer to tell him about the battle stink. He could smell it himself. It smelled good. First contact was good. But war? War was what the Alliance of Peaceful Planets lived for. "'You can try,' the alien said. "'A warning shot, Lieutenant.' "'he said, tipping his head at Gorinsky. "'Miss the UFO by, say, half a million clicks.' "'The click of Dengarinsky's talon "'was the only sound on the bridge, "'as every crew member held zur breath, "'and then the barely detectable haptic, "'woom, as a torpedo left its bay "'and streaked off in glorious 3-D in the hollow tank, "'trailed by a psychedelic glitter of labels "'indicating its approach, operational status,' detected countermeasures, and all the glorious, pointless instrumentation data that was merely icing on the cake. The torpedo closed on the UFO, drawing closer, 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 then blink. It's gone, sir. Dengarinsky's talons clicked. Transporter beam picked it right out of the sky. That's impossible. He didn't bother to say it. Of course it was possible. They'd just seen it happen. But transporting a photon torpedo that was underway and emitting its punishing halo of quantum chaff should have acquired enough energy to melt a star and enough computing power to calculate the universe. It was the space-naval equivalent of catching a sword blade between your palms as it was arcing toward your chest. "'Take us back to 70 AUs,' he said, admiring the calmness in his own voice. He had a bad feeling, but it didn't pay to let it show. The armrest gave him another discreet notifier, this one about the changing composition of the pheromones on the bridge. Fear stink. Now! The ship's claxon sounded again, louder than he'd ever heard it outside of the Academy War Games. He silenced it with a flick of a finger and peered into the hollow tank. Incoming UFO, sir! The tank showed it to them. It was sickeningly familiar. That's our torpedo, he said. Closing fast, Dengarinsky said. Shields up. Estimated impact in twenty-eight seconds. Evasive action, Subishi said uselessly. They were already in an evasive pattern, the ship automatically responding to the threat, faster than any human reflexes. Anti-missile battery, he snapped. The smaller missiles streaked toward the torpedo. "'Can we make contact with the control interface on the torpedo?' The comms officer jabbed furiously at the air around his helmet, making hand jive known only to the most highly trained communication specialists, each one executing a flurry of commands to the comms computer. Uh, "'No, sir,' he muttered around the helmet's visor. "'I can establish a three-way handshake with it, but it doesn't respond to my authorization tokens.' "'The fallback token's no good either.' In the hollow tank, the anti-missiles with their labels streaking toward the missile. It dodged them, shot at them, dodged them. Then one of them found its mark and the missile detonated, a silent fireball that collapsed in on itself, lensing the gravity around it and bending space. "'All right, then,' Subishi said. "'Hail the UFO, Lieutenant.' "'That wasn't very friendly.' "'he said. "'I get the feeling we got off to a bad start. "'Shall we start over again?' "'I've already issued you my challenge, Captain. "'Personal combat on world. First one to the top of the highest peak, "'claims the planet. "'The loser surrenders it. "'I'll give you the whole system if you want.' "'I see. "'And if I refuse?' "'The klaxon sound was louder than before.' In the tank, dozens of photon torpedoes had just blinked into existence, relentlessly plowing through the depths of space, aimed directly at the ship. Helpfully, the tank tagged them with countdown labels. The ship was not going to make it. Subishi allowed himself three seconds, and then he cleared his throat. Ahem. We accept your challenge. The torpedoes vanished, leaving behind their labels, an instant later, the tank helpfully removed the labels, too. "'Sir, with all due respect, you can't beam down to the surface!' Mota was visibly agitated, and writhed uncomfortably under Subishi's calm stare. "'I don't recall asking for your opinion, Commander.' He plucked at his baggies and wished for the comforting tautness of his ship-wrapped uniform. Such was the price of leadership.' The alien was very clear on this in any event. It's calling the shots. Captain, you are being driven by the alien. You need to get inside this decision loop and start setting the agenda. It's suicide otherwise. You saw how much power... I saw, Commander. It's well and good to talk about getting inside decision loops, but sometimes you're outgunned, and all you've got is your own bravery and instincts. It's not like we can outrun that thing. We could back off. We don't know what its transport beam range is, but it's clearly far in excess of anything we've ever seen. I'm betting that I have a better chance of getting to some kind of resolution on the surface than I do of being able to pull back to warping distance ahead of its ability to turn us into shrapnel. Some kind of resolution, sir? Well, yes, we're intelligent species. We can talk. There's probably something we have that they want. And we're pretty sure that there's something that they have that we want. They're transporter technology, for starters. That decision-loop stuff is applicable to fighting. We already know we can't do that. We need negotiation. The Wobbly relaxed visibly. I see, sir. What? Did you think I was going on a suicide mission? Sir, of course not, but... Besides, I'm curious to see this thing face-to-face. That UFO is barely big enough to hold my breakfast. Those ugly bastards must be about three millimeters tall... How do they accomplish the neuronal density to pack a functional intelligence into something that small? Good question, sir, Mota said. Subishi could tell he'd won the argument. Commander, I'm detasking you from the bridge for now. Me, sir? Who will have the comm? Oh, leave it to Varma, he said. The sea string commander was always complaining that she never got to run the bridge when important things were happening. Varma? The hurt was palpable. "'even through the thick, wobbly accent. "'Of course, Varma!' "'He gave forth one of his ironic head tilts. "'You can't possibly be in charge.' "'He waited for one beat, leaving Mota trembling on Zur Hook. "'You're coming down to the surface with me!' "'Emotions chased each other across the wobbly's face. "'Pride. Worry. "'Sir!' Fleet procedure prohibits having two or more senior officers in a single landing party. Unless the crew members in question possess specific talents or capabilities that are likely to be of necessity during the on-planet mission. Don't quote regs at me, Commander. I eat regs for breakfast. Another head tilt. The wobbly's exo gave an all-over shudder that Subishi recognized as a wriggle of pure delight. Subishi smiled at Zur. Command wasn't so hard, sometimes. When he was a cadet, he'd hated the transporter drills. Yes, they were safe, over-engineered to a million nines, but at the end of the day, Subishi just didn't like being annihilated to a quantum level and reassembled at a great distance by a flaky, incomprehensible entanglement effect. Deep down in his cells, annihilation equaled dread. Command meant that you had to like transporters, love them. So he'd gotten over his dread. He'd found a pliant transporter technician, an older career woman, the backbone of the fleet, and struck up an arrangement. For an entire month, he'd paged her whenever he needed to go anywhere in the academy, and she'd beamed him there. A dozen transports a day, two dozen. The fresher, quarters, classes, the simulators— the mess hall, her room, after-hours where she'd met him wearing a slinky film of machine-wrapped gauze and a smile. A month of that, and he changed the equation. Annihilation equaled yawn. Status, Commander P. Mota. The wobbly salute ticked off Zer Forlobe. Sir, crew ready for transport. Landing coordinates. Here, Mota said. Gesturing at the hollow tank, which transitioned to a view of the planet below them, and quickly zoomed to a prairie at the foot of an impressive mountain range that unevenly split the smaller of the planet's two land masses. And our objective? Mota gestured, and the hollow tank skipped forward, superimposing a glowing field over one of the mountain tops. Tsubishi realized that this was another slide presentation. Mota really loved slide presentations. It was a wobbly thing. Commander P-Mota. Yes, sir. If that mountaintop is our objective, why aren't we beaming down onto it? Mota jumped to the next slide, which zoomed to the mountain range with a bluish bubble superimposed over most of it. No-go zone, sir. Test transports of enzymatically representative samples proved Unreliable? Unreliable? The enzymes we retrieved had been denatured, sir, as with extensive heat. They were barbecued, Cap, said 2nd Lieutenant Raina, the mission science officer, a wobbly who had made a hobby out of twin-cent earth in a brown-nosing effort to ascend through the ranks faster than wobblies usually managed. It was an open secret on the Colossus, too, that the two wobblies loathed each other. Subishi approved of this, and approved even more of mota's forbearance in selecting reina for the landing party i see mota flicked to the next slide a 3d fly through of a trail of the mountains this appears to be the optimal route to the peak sir the seven leagues here have a millimeter accurate picture of the landscape and they're projecting a 195 minute journey time assuming no trouble en route Subishi rocked back and forth his seven-league boots, whose harness ran all the way up to his mid-thigh. Running on these things was fun, the kind of thing that made serving on away teams into such a treat. I assume we can count on trouble, Commander Mota. I certainly am. Yes, sir, Mota said, clicking forward one slide. These are alternate routes through the mountains, and in the worst case... The Seven Leagues have a bouncing ditch they'll deploy to get us onto the face. That sounded less fun. The Boots would discharge their entire power packs in one bone-jarring bounce on a near-straight vertical that would launch him like a missile into the mountain face, with only a couple of mono-silk drogue chutes to slow him before impact. How many more slides, Commander? No more, Mota said. Subishi knew Z was lying, and could tell that Z was disappointed. Make it up later. Time to beam down. His palms were sweating, his heart thudding. Outwardly, he was cool. Everyone ready? All six in the party chorused, Aye, sir, in unison. Do it, he said to the transporter operator. She smiled at him and engaged the system that would annihilate him and reassemble him millions of clicks away on the surface of a virgin planet. He smiled back in the instant before the machine annihilated him. Horniness was a hazard of his transporter conditioning regime at the academy, but he could deal with it. The transporter technician deserved a commendation. Not many of the techs on the bridge were thoughtful enough to land a steaming cappuccino on the planet along with Tsubishi. He liked the attention to detail. He made a mental note and had a sip. Report, Commander. Mota had Zur calm out, and had been busily verifying from the surface all the readings they'd gotten from orbit, establishing multiple redundant links with the ship, querying the health readouts from the gut-bots and the landing party's bodies. Nominal, Captain! Let's have a little recce before we kick off, shall we? I was expecting company when we landed. Seems like our friend's style. Yes, sir, Moda said. He unclipped an instrument gun from his Exo's thigh and fired it straight into the air. A billion dandelion seeds caught the wind and blew in every direction, settling slowly to the ground or lofting higher and higher. The little sensors on them started to measure things as soon as they were out of the muzzle. All the networking subsystems knit them together into a unified, ubiquitous surveillance mesh that spread out for ten kilometers in all direction, though it grew patchier around the edges. "'Sir, I have no sign of the alien or its artifacts!' "'Nothing on this planet bigger than a bacterium, "'and the gut-bots have already got their genome solved and phaged. "'I recommend beginning the mission.' "'Subishi looked around and finished his cappuccino. "'The terrain was as depicted in the holotank. "'Sear, rocky, stained in coral colors "'that swirled together like organic oil slicks. "'The temperature was a little chilly, "'but nothing the baggies couldn't cut and the wind made an eerie sound as it howled through the rugged mountains that towered all around them. "'All right, then. Form up, two by two, then go into full auto. Keep your eyes peeled and your guard up,' he thought for a moment. "'Be on the lookout for very small hostiles, possibly as small as a centimeter.' The away team, six crew members with robotic feet, baggies, and looks of grim determination exchanged glances. I know, but that is one tiny damned UFO gang. They smiled. He finished his cappuccino and set the cup down, then put a rock on top of it to keep it from blowing away. He'd pick it up and return to the ship with it. On my mark, then. Do it. And they were off. The Seven Leagues took great pains to establish a regular rhythm even though it meant capping the max speed at about 70 percent of what the body mechanics of the crew could sustain. But the rhythm was necessary if their brains were going to converge binocular vision. Otherwise, the landscape blurred into a nauseous smear. So Bishi's command channel, set deep in his cochlea, counted down the time to the mountaintop. It was a marvelous way to travel. Your legs took on a life of their own, "'moving with precise, quick, tireless steps "'that propelled you like a dream of flying. "'The most savage terrain became a rolling pasture, "'and the steady rhythm lent itself to musical humming, "'as though you were waltzing with the planet itself. "'At the halfway mark, Subishi called a break, "'and they broke out hot meals and drinks. "'He switched to decaf, "'as three was his limit in any 24-hour period. "'More made him grumpy. "'They picnicked on a plateau.' their seven leagues locked and extended into stools. As they ate, Subishi and Mota circulated among the crew members, checking in with them, keeping morale up, checking the medical diagnostics from their gut bots. The landing party were in fine form, excited to be off the ship and on an adventure, keen to meet the foe when and if they chose to appear. That was the devil of it. Subishi and Mota agreed. Privately over their subvocal command channel. Where was the UFO? The ship confirmed that Z hadn't simply transported to the mountain peak, but neither could it locate Zer anywhere on the planet. What sort of game is Z playing? Zubishi subvocalized, keeping his face composed in a practiced expression of easy confidence. Captain, permission to speak freely. Of course. The UFOs demonstrated capabilities unseen in known space. We have no idea what it might be planning. This may be a suicide mission. Commander Mota, I realize that. But as you say, the UFO has prodigious capabilities. And Z made it clear it was this or be blown out of the sky when all you have is a least worst option. There's nothing for it but to make the best of it. This was the kind of can-do thinking that defined command in the fleet and it was the Wobbly's general incapacity to embrace it that kept them from making the A-squads. Mota turned away and pitched in on the cleanup effort. You took a lunch break? The voice came from the center of their little circle, and there was something deeply disturbing about it. It took Subishi a moment to realize what had made his balls crawl up into his abdomen. It was his voice, and there was the UFO speaking in it. A lunch break when I made it clear that the stakes were the planet and your lives? It wasn't two centimeters tall. It was more like three meters, a kind of pyramidal mountain of flesh, topped with a head the size of a large pumpkin. The Medusa wreath of tentacles fluttered in the wind, twisting and coiling. Subishi's hand was on his blaster, and he noted with satisfaction that the rest of his crew were ready to draw. Via the command channel, Varma was whispering, the ship was watching, prepared to give support. Deliberately, he took his hand off his blaster. Greetings, he said. You have an amazing facility for language. Flattery? Please. The UFO whacked its tail on the rock. Not interested, and I distinctly said one-on-one, what are these things doing here? It waved a flipper derisively at the crew, who stood firm. I hoped I could dispense with challenges and move on to some kind of negotiation. A planet isn't nearly as interesting to the Alliance as a new species. Once again, I bid you greetings in the name of... You don't learn fast, do you? The flipper twitched again, and the crew vanished. Subishi drew his blaster. What have you done with my crew? But he knew. He knew from the telltale shimmer as they went. They'd been beamed somewhere. Into deep space... "'to the landing spot, back onto the ship. "'You have three seconds. Three—' "'The UFO twitched again, and the blaster vanished too, "'tingling in his hands as it went. "'He looked down at his palm and saw that some of the skin had gone with it. "'It oozed red blood. "'The UFO extended a tentacle in his direction and twitched. "'Sorry about that. I'm usually more accurate. "'As to your crew, I annihilated them.' I removed their tokens from the play area. You're a game player. You should be able to grasp this. Game player? Subishi's mind reeled. What do you think we're doing here, Captain? The last word dripped with perfectly executed sarcasm. The UFO really did have an impressive language module. With creeping hopelessness, Subishi realized that Z couldn't possibly have trained it from their meager conversation to date. Z must have been snaffling up titanic amounts of communication from the Colossus II's internal columns. Z was thoroughly inside his decision loop. Competing. Gaming. You're clearly familiar with the idea, Mr. Role Player. Why do you keep calling me that? You're starting to bore me, Captain. Look, it's clear you're outmatched here. You've got a lovely little play area up there in orbit. I'm afraid you're about to forfeit it. No! Subishi's veneer of calm, control blistered and burst. There are hundreds of people on that ship. It would be murder! The UFO inflated Zur throat bladder and exhaled it a couple of times. Murder? Z said. Come now, Captain. Let's not be overly dramatic. This was the first time that the UFO appeared the least bit off balance. Subishi saw a small initiative and seized it murder of course it's murder we're not at war it will be an act of sheer murder act of war captain i'm not playing your game i'm playing its tentacles whipped around its head and subishi got the impression that it was fishing for a word i compete to put my flag on a pattern of planets it's a different game from your little space marines dramatics on that plateau on that remote world "'Near that unregarded star, "'Captain Reynolds J. Subishi experienced Satori. "'We're not playing a game. "'We are space marines. "'Space navy, actually. "'We're not playing soldiers. "'We are soldiers. "'Those are real people, "'and you've really, really killed them.' "'The alien's tentacles went slack "'and twitched against its upper slopes. "'It inflated and deflated its bladder several times.' The wind howled. You mean that you haven't got a recent stored copy of them? Stored copy of them? The tentacles twitched again. Then they went rigid and stood around Zur Head like a mane. The bladder expanded and the UFO let out a keening moan the like of which Tsubishi had not heard anywhere in the galaxy. You don't make backups? What is wrong with you? The UFO vanished. Instantly, Subishi tried to raise the Colossus too on the command channel. Either his calm was dead, or—or—he choked down a sob of his own. The UFO returned to him as he sat on the mountain peak. He hadn't had anywhere else to go, and the Seven Leagues had been programmed for it. From his high vantage, he looked down on wispy clouds, distant lower mountaintops, the sea. He shivered. The command channel was dead— He'd been there for hours, pacing and doing the occasional calisthenics to stay warm, to take his mind off things. He was the captain. He was supposed to have initiative. He was supposed to be doing something, but what could he do? You don't have backups. The UFO stood before him, a hill of tentacled flesh. It was closer than before, and he could smell it now. A nice smell. A little yeasty. It spoke in a... Mota's voice now. "'I really don't understand what you mean.' He was cold, shivering, hungry. He wanted a cappuccino. "'You have the transporter. You scan people to a quantum level. Store the scan, annihilate them. Reassemble them elsewhere. Are you seriously telling me it never occurred to you to store the scans?' Captain Reynold J. Subishi of the APP ship Colossus II was thunderstruck. He really, really wanted a cappuccino now. I can honestly say that it never had. He fumbled for an excuse. Uh, the, the ethical conundra. What if there were two of me? Uh, he thought, what if... What is wrong with you people? So what if there were two of you? There were two of the UFO now. Subishi was no expert in distinguishing individuals of his race, but he had the distinct impression that they were the same entity, times two, times three now. Now there were four. They surrounded him, bladders going in and out. "'Annihilation is no big deal. Accepting it is a survival instinct. You honestly dragged that gigantic lump of metal around the galaxy? What is wrong with you people?' "'Subishi needed some initiative here. "'This was not a negotiation. "'He needed to make it one. "'You've murdered five of my crew today. "'You threatened my ship with torpedoes. "'We came in peace. "'You made war. "'It isn't too late to rescue the relations "'between our civilizations "'if you are willing to negotiate as equals "'in the galactic community of equals.' "'Negotiate? "'Fella, sorry, Captain. "'I don't speak for anyone.' Now there was just one UFO, shimmering space where the others had been. The UFO paused for a second. "'Give me a second. Integrating the new memories from those folks takes a little doing.' "'Right. Okay. I'm just here on my own behalf. Yes, I fired on your ship. After you fired on me.' "'Fired on you? You weren't in that artifact. You wouldn't fit in ten of those things. It was an unmanned sensor package.' You think I bother to travel around in great hunks of metal? Why not? You've got impressive transporter technology, but you can't expect me to believe that you can beam matter over interstellar distances. Of course not. That's what subspace radio is for. I upload the latest me to the transporter on the sensor package and then beam as many of myself as I need to the planet's surface. "'What kind of idiot would actually put Xur body in a giant hollow vehicle "'and ship it around space? "'The resource requirements are insane. "'You don't really, really do that, do you?' "'Subishi covered his face with his hands and groaned. "'You're telling me that you're just an individual, "'not representing any government, "'and that you conquer planets all on your own "'using subspace radio and transporter beams?' "'Yes, indeed!' But why? I told you! I compete to put my flag on a pattern of planets. My friends compete to do the same. The winner is the one who surrounds the largest number of Zur opponents' territory. It's fun! Why do you put on costumes and ship your asses around the galaxy? The UFO had a remarkable command of standard. You've got an excellent symbology AI, he said. Perhaps our civilizations could transfer some technology to one another. Establish trade. There had to be some way to interest the UFO in keeping Subishi around and letting him back on his ship. The planet was cold and he was hungry. He wanted a cappuccino. The UFO shrugged elaborately. It's remarkable what you can accomplish when you don't squander your species' resources playing soldier. Sorry, Navy. Why would you bother with trade? "'What could possibly be worth posting around interstellar distances, "'as opposed to just beaming submolecular perfect copies of goods "'into wherever they're in demand? "'You people are deeply perverse, "'and to think you talked 42 other species into playing along. "'What a farce!' "'Subishi tried for words, but they wouldn't come. "'He found that he was chewing an invisible mouthful of speech, "'working his jaws silently. "'You've really had a bad day, huh?' "'Right. Okay. Here's what I'll do for you.' There was a cappuccino sitting next to him. He picked it up and sipped reverently at it. It was perfect. It was identical to the one that had been beamed down to him when he arrived on planet. That meant that the UFO had been sniffing all the transporter beam activity since they arrived. And that meant... "'You can restore the landing party.' "'Oh, yes, indeed, I can do that.' and you don't trade for technology but you might be persuaded to give me i mean the alliance access to some of this certainly and will you if you think you want it subishi nearly fell over himself thanking the ufo he was mid sentence when he found himself back on the transporter deck along with his entire away party first things first Subishi headed straight for the fresher to get out of his baggies and back into uniform. He held his arms over his head and muttered, Do it, to the computer, received the crackled, starched uniform and lowered his arms, once again suited and booted, every millimeter an officer of the APP Space Navy. And it felt wrong. He didn't feel like he was wearing a uniform at all. He was wearing a costume. He knew that now, He had the computer signal his officers to meet him in the executive boardroom, whose long table pulsed with real-time strategic maps of the known galaxy. And as he slid into his seat, he recognized it finally, and for the first time, for what it really was, a game board. "'Report, Commander Mota,' he said. Of course, Mota would have a slideshow whipped up by now. He had a whole executive staff dedicated to preparing them on a moment's notice.' The slideshow would give him time to gather himself to recover some of the dignity of his office. But Mota just looked at him blankly from within Zer exoskeleton, Zer big wobbly eyes unreadable. Tsubishi peered more closely. Commander Mota, are you out of uniform? Mota plucked at Zer baggies with a tentacle tip. I suppose I am, Reynolds. Zubishi knew the first signs of mutiny. "'He'd gotten top marks in command psych at the academy. "'He looked into the faces of his officers, "'tried to gauge the support there. "'Commander, you're relieved. "'Return to your quarters and await my orders.' "'The Wobbly looked impassively at him. "'The silence stretched. "'The other officers looked at him with equal coolness. "'It wasn't just his command he felt slipping away. "'It was the idea of command itself. "'The fragility of the traditions.' "'of the discipline, of the great work that bound them all together. "'It wavered. "'Panic seized him, tightened his chest, "'a feeling he hadn't known since those days at the Academy "'when he was breaking himself of the fear of transporters. "'Please?' he said. "'It came out in a squeak. "'Mota gave him a lazy salute. "'All right, Captain. "'I'll play another round of the game, for now.' but it won't do you any good. Z moved to the hatch. It irised open. Behind it, a dozen more motas. Motad joined them and turned around and gave him and the rest of the officers another sarcastic salute. You all enjoy yourselves now, he said, and they turned as a body and walked away. Subishi's hand was resting on something, a cappuccino. He lifted it to his lips and had a little sip but he burnt his lip and spilled it down the front of his nice starched uniform. Costume. He set it back down and began, very quietly, to cry.
1: There you go. Thank you so much, Corey, for letting Starship Sova narrate that. And Mr. Jim Campanella. Fantastic! Thank you so much. Next up is Rod Barnett with his film talk. And Rod's bought yourself in you, Mike. Go on, Rod. Sounds fantastic. Hello, everybody. Today we
5: venture into a slightly different type of film. It is uh, science fictional, but it's kind of retro science fiction. You may have heard of it, but uh, you may not have seen it. Conceived as the ultimate homage to classic black-and-white adventure movies and multi-chapter serials, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow began as one man's labor of love. Cary Conran worked on his dream project for years, and after producing six minutes of footage as a demonstration of what he wanted to accomplish, started hunting around for financing. That he was able to bring such an unusual concept to fruition is a testament to his fortitude as well as his skills that he pushed this odd idea through with the then-radical technique of filming everything against green screens and creating all the sets and special effects after the actors were finished, makes his accomplishment simply amazing. Jam-packed with eye-popping sights and dozens of sly end jokes for old movie fanatics, this is a film made by a fan for fans. You've never seen anything quite like Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, at least not in the last 60 years or so. The time is the late 1930s. The place, New York City. Newspaper reporter Polly Perkins is investigating the disappearance of several leading scientists around the world when the city is attacked by giant flying robots. Joe Sullivan, a.k.a. Sky Captain, fights off this weird invasion, but is unprepared for a later assault on his private airfield by more flying machines. During this attack, Joe's best friend and genius Gadget Man Dex is kidnapped, but leaves behind a clue pointing to the possible location that he thinks the robots are receiving their radio messages from. Meanwhile, Polly has discovered the man behind these attacks is named Totenkopf, and also has found two mysterious vials that the madman needs as part of his evil plans. Despite acrimonious feelings, to say the least, between Polly and Joe, they set out together to save Dex and stop the mysterious man masterminding things. After finding a deserted scientific base in the Himalayas, they enlist the age of eyepatch-wearing Commander Frankie Cook of Britain's Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm in their search. Frankie's a woman, by the way, and she's played by Angelina Jolie. Hard to miss. With her flying aircraft carrier making her even more like Nick Fury than she did with just the eye patch, they battle their way to Totenkopf's secret island complex and discover his plan to destroy the world. How can he be stopped? Now, strangely, I did not come to my love of Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow quickly, and that's kind of strange. This movie is geared precisely for someone like me. I love old adventure films, watch and collect the classic serials of the 30s and 40s, read old hero pulp novels constantly, and love retro science fiction tales of all kind. But oddly, when I saw this film theatrically, I was pleased, but not overjoyed. After the initial excitement of the opening attack on New York and the first few hops around the globe, I began to feel a distance between me and the story. I just wasn't involved. I felt that the movie lost momentum in the last half, becoming less interesting and slightly tiring, so I came away liking Sky Captain, but still a little disappointed. But then, I re-watched it at home, and I suddenly got it. Almost by accident. Because of my hectic schedule, I was unable to go through the movie in one session, so I divided it up over a two-day period. This schedule was even more broken up by pet care issues, dinner plans, laundry, everything in the world. This led me to realize that the second half of the film was not only much better than I remembered it, but also easily the best part. By chopping it into five roughly 20-minute segments I had, without knowing it, turned it into what Conran had envisioned making, a big-budget 1940s-style serial. The flaw in the film, for me, wasn't that it flagged in the home stretch, but that it maintains its energy and excitement for too long to take in one sitting. Structured as a classic chapter play, it has too many cliffhanger moments for a single viewing. Any fan will tell you to never watch an entire serial at one time. It'll deaden your mind, numb your butt, and cause synaptic overload. Conran and his team have done a great job of capturing both the serial's good points, action, thrills, stunt work, and bad ones. Thin characters, stilted dialogue, logic-defying stories. But by having to make it into a long-form film, they've almost overshot the mark. From looking at the original six-minute short Conran made, it's clear he saw this as a serial, and the piece even ends with the promise of seven exciting chapters to come. There's ample evidence that they would have liked to make the story as a multi part film, and I'm convinced that they should craft an alternate version someday for DVD. Fingers crossed. I can already imagine the chapter titles Watery Crash, Island Assault, Rocket of Death, and those great Sound of Doom voiceovers. Ugh, that would be so fun. Will Dex be killed by the metallic monsters? Can Polly and Sky Captain escape certain destruction? Why is Sky Captain diving towards certain death on the ocean surface? Man, that would be fun. But even as I confess that I really do love this movie, I'm not blind to its faults. Even within the strictures of the classic serials, the dialogue could use more zip, and though he does a fine job, I'm not sure Jude Law was the perfect choice for the lead. Also, first-time director Conran's inexperience shows at times with some flat scenes and missed details that really bug me. Of course, in a movie that sports a combination airplane-submarine, maybe I'm being too picky for my own good. This is a movie that I'll be watching over and over again. It's going to end up slotted into the DVD player repeatedly for years to come. And I'm glad there are others out there that love these kinds of old adventure thrills as much, if not more, than I do. So if, like me, you enjoy retro science fiction with a bit of a 30s-40s twist, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow just might be right up your alley. I know I'm feeling the urge to re-watch it again, right now.
1: There you go. Thank you so much, Rod, for that. Do keep them coming. Always look forward to them. So just before we get into new titles, little shout-out. Art, again, I'm looking for more art. If anyone is out there who is an artist, illustrator, and wants to do some work for Starship Server on these covers, please get in touch. StarshipSover at gmail.com. Send us a, an email and I'll send you over an mp3 story or like a written story that I've got in the vaults of the ship. And you can put some artwork to it and we'll make it into a cover. That would be fantastic. So let's jump feet first into new titles. And we have four new titles this week. First one up is Celia Friedman's Wings of Wrath. Publishers Weekly says Beautifully Written. In a world where the price of magic is life itself, a group of seemingly immortal sorcerers have cheated the system. Locust says, a feast for those who like their fantasies dark. SFX says, it's potent stuff. Friedman's an excellent writer. Fantasy Book Critic says, typically superb writing style, dark, content and well-drawn characters. They say it comes from Orbit. It's one of those trade paperbacks. It's priced at 12 99 In a world where the price of magic is life itself, a group of seemingly immortal sorcerers have cheated the system. And now that Kalamar has breached their secrets, she seeks to join their ranks as the first female magister. But they would rather see her dead, forcing her to flee to the frozen north. Here only the ruthless and the guardians of an old magic prosper, shadowed by a barrier of magic spires that protect their world from harm. There, Kalamat will find an evil far greater than a sorcerer's enmity, however dangerous this might prove, and she will learn of a dire prediction that will pave the way to war. In a past era, an ancient bloodline was cultivated to stand in the path of darkness. Now its warriors must unearth the truth at the heart of the legends and stand firm against the enemy that once brought mankind to the edge of destruction, and Kalamat will be needed on the front line. Celia Friedman has been a voracious reader from her earliest days and began writing at the age of 13. At university, she studied maths, then theatre, before following her love of costume design to study and pursue a career in that field. She taught costume design at a Northern Virginia university and has designed period dress patterns for a historical supply company. She now writes full-time and teaches creative writing courses at a local high school. You can find out more about Cecilia over at Orbitbooks.net. Price start twelve ninety nine A trade paperback comes in at roundabout 404, 405, 406 pages. There you go. Next up is Jacqueline Carey. Cushiel's Mercy. Knowledge is power, yet power corrupts. That's quite nice. Orbit again. Price start eight ninety nine. This is a chunky one there. Comes in at 652 pages. Sidoni, heir to the throne, and Emerel, son of a traitor, have confessed their dangerous union, but their love has caused political uproar. Emerel's infamous mother plunged Therese Durange into a bloody war, and her crimes will not be lightly forgiven. If the couple wed, Sidon will be disinherited. A union will only be permitted if Emerel finds the mother he has never known, and returns her to court for execution. But newer evil takes precedent when a visiting diplomat casts a dark enchantment over the D'Angeline court. The sorcery turns home with Sidon in his thrall, a falsely woven pledge of support in a foreign war. And no one but Emeril remembers their forbidden romance. He must evade bewitched friends and work with erstwhile enemies to rescue Sidoni and pull the country back from the brink of conflict. Publishers Weekly says, Carey delivers a heady mix of adventure and power. Booklist says Carey has wowed us throughout. They go again. A ninety nine orbit. Koschely's Mercy. Jacqueline Carey. Next up is Robert J Sawyer, Hugo and Nebula award-winning author. Wiley thought provoking. Publishers Weekly says this is about wake. This is twelve ninety nine Orion Books. This is the kind of the glance section of Orion Books. The web is about to wake. Kathleen Dekta is young, pretty, a mathematician, genius and blind. But she can surf the net with the best of them, following its complex paths in her mind. But when a Japanese researcher develops a new signal processing implant that might give her sight, she jumps at the chance and sees a whole new world. Her brain has co-opted her visual cortex to help her navigate online. And when the implant is activated, Kathleen sees not our world, but the riotous landscape of the web exploding into a vivid reality around her and discovers something, some other inhuman, immense and getting smarter John Scalzi says like getting a gift from a friend who visits all the strange and undiscovered places in the world Jack McDivitt, unforgettable, impossible to put down Comes in at three hundred and sixty pages, and I remember when this was serialized in analog and I never you know I, I get analog and i never <laughs> never read it when it was in there, but this one is looking very tempting there now it 's funny that how it's in book form and different pictures and everything, but looks quite nice that next one up is Perry Pavel's the cardinal's Blades. This one is also by Galance and priced at nine ninety nine. The Cardinal's Blades is a superb swashbuckling novel set in a vividly realistic seventeenth century Paris, where intrigue, duels, spies and adventures are rife and Cardinal Riclou's men may be prevailed upon to risk life and lame in the name of France at a moment's notice. And with war already on the horizon, the defence of a nation has never been more pressing. Danger is rising from the south an insidious plot which could end with a huge dragon-shaped shadow falling over France. A shadow cast by dragons, quite unlike the pet dragonets which roam the cities like stray cats. These dragons and their descendants are ancient, powerful and terrible. And their plans contain little room for the lives or freedom of men. Cardinal Richelieu has nowhere else to turn. Captain La frog and his elite group of men, the Cardinal's Blades, must turn the tide. They must hold the deadly black claw... Cult at bay, root out the traitors To the crown, rescue the prisoners And fulfil their mission for the cardinal And their country, and above all For themselves. It's death or victory And victory has never been less certain Go on there yeah. <laughs> That sounds Father. It's funny, I was going to Pick, you know, when I seen Wake come out And I had it in this little batch, I was definitely going to pick Wake as the, you know the, the, the one, the book of the week, but I'm actually There's going to be a joint book of the week, Pierre Pavels, The Cardinal's Blades and Wake, Robert J. Sawyer, they're going to be my two books of the week. They're both from Glance, so there you go. That is Oral Delight, show number 110. Hope you enjoyed it. So next week is what we've all been waiting for. Larry Santoro's epic story. 8,000 or 20-odd thousand. We'll wait and see. But it kicks off next week, and we're going to split it into two sections. Majority of emails came in that says it needs to be serialized, so Larry's split it into two sections there. And what also happens is, and it's got to be down to the wire for Skeet as well. Skeet's got to get the artwork together, and the, the kind of PDF is going to be given to D and then it's going to be uploaded onto the site ready for a download as well. So you can buy this Larry story. 22, Was it 22, 24,000 words? 20,000 words? And the artwork by Skeet, all that money through the month of December will go directly to Spider Robinson and Jeannie Robinson, you know. And like I say, the book's coming out, or that one special book, and it's it's been snapped up and bought, but that money as well will go to Spider as well. So hopefully, I'm saying this now because I just know Skeet is just so busy at the minute. Hopefully, from the 1st of December, you can come to the website and download. Buy that PDF ebook, and it'll be two ninety nine, two pound ninety nine, and all like I say all that money goes to Spider, and that's going to run from the from the beginning of December to the end of December, and then that's it, it's gone, and that's it, no more. It is Larry's story, and Larry can do what he wants with it. Hopefully, he will go- take it further and further. So please, if you're going to, you know what I mean, it's like a bit of a naff time, I guess, now for Spider and Genie, you know, with the kind of what's hanging over them. Do that, you know, do that for them. Do that for me. £2.99, you know. Even if you don't want the story, just please come over and donate and we'll send that money off to Spider Robinson and Genie. Please, please, please. So that's what's coming next week. I've loved Larry's progress reports. You know, they've just been like little nuggets of enticement to kind of what's coming, what's coming. Will this story live up to all oh, the hype? I'm certainly looking forward to it. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me.
2: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment. Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation of procedure is Shuttle Shovel set for launch. Airlock will be opened
5: in three, two,
3: one.